This is Digital Dot Talks in Geneva, a 15-minute podcast to give you an overview of international digital issues and the role of Geneva in shaping our digital future. This podcast is presented by the Mission of the Netherlands in Geneva and the Geneva Internet Platform. Okay, welcome everybody um, to this uh, new episode of the podcast Connecting the Digital Dots. Uh, my name is Lars Tommers. I'm the new Deputy Permanent Representative of the uh, Netherlands Mission to the uh, UN organization Geneva. And I'm very honored that today I'm joined by Ms. Erin Kahn. And you are the UN Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of right to freedom of opinion and expression. Welcome. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to talk to you. Well, it's, I've, I've looked at your CV, it's, it's on the web, everybody can find it. But let me just highlight a few of the, uh, of the most important uh, points that I've uh, taken out of it. It's, it's um, your position as UN Special Rapporteur, you've been that since 1st of August. And you're also the first woman to hold this position since the establishment of the mandate in 1993. Um, you have been the Secretary General of uh, Amnesty International from 2001 until 2009. And you ensured that um, the mandate of Amnesty International was expanded to include economic, social and cultural rights. That's very impressive. How did you do that? Well, because I think for human beings um, who are the rights bearers, we, we don't think of our rights as civil and political or economic, social and cultural. We think of how it affects our life. And whether it's education or elections, uh, they are of equal importance to us. So to make a false dichotomy between human rights doesn't make sense if you really care about the impact on people. So human rights are universal, regardless of where, regardless of which matter? Indeed, they're universal and I would say they're indivisible. For example, if you take my mandate, freedom of opinion and expression, it is vital for both development and democracy, and of course, for human dignity. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. I think that also has been your sort of common thread in through your, all your positions as a, as a lawyer, as a human rights advocate. Um, you very much try to expand the scope, the knowledge and the reach of, of the human rights mandate. So that's, uh, I think it's very, uh, it's very well done. And you also uh, received many awards, including the Sydney Peace Prize in 2006 for your contribution to human rights. Congratulations. Now let's start with the, the topic today. The topic today is freedom of expression online. Um, what are the challenges? What are the difficulties? What are the, the dangers that lie ahead of us and how you and your organizations are trying to, uh, to improve um, uh, human rights online as well as offline. Um, but uh, this morning I got into my car, forgot my telephone and I felt completely naked. I had no connection to the world. I'm midway, I had to turn my car back and just get the phone. Does that sound familiar? Does that feel familiar? Absolutely, absolutely. I think we're living in an information society now and we are driven by technology and data. Um, so that makes it all the more important um, that when it comes to our right to communicate effectively, the, the right to opinion and expression is about knowledge, information and communication. It's a vital right. And I, I feel that there's been a paradigm shift in the way in which we look at information, you know, from holding pa papers in our hand. And some of us still do that. We, we were born in the analog age, you know, <laughs> you and I. But for those who are living today, and we are living in the digital age, digital technology, uh, internet, 
uh, the social media platforms are vital to their existence. Yeah. If the viewers would see us now, I'm actually holding a piece of paper instead of my phone with, with the various questions that I was about to ask you. Um, just right off the bat, and I think that's the core thing of our discussion today, can I freely and without fear express myself online? And, and who watches actually over my freedom and, and my safety in this world of digital dots? Very good question, because although today information technology means that our ideas and our thoughts and our views and our perspectives can go across borders anywhere. I can communicate with anyone around the world that I want to. In reality, we are still bound by territory, which means, first of all, that there is some form of regulation in many countries by governments, censorship, for example, in authoritarian states. At the same time, uh, there is also a, a, a new, how can I say, a new culture of information on the digital platforms. Uh, we are free to say what we want. Uh, it has never been so uh, powerful uh, for individuals to be able to communicate their thoughts, to organize. If you look at protests in Iran now or um, other places, you can see the impact that uh, uh, internet and social media communications is made. At the same time, there also comes risks because it's not only the good uh, people who are online, they're also what I would call bad actors, malevolent actors, who are misusing and abusing information online. Therefore, we see online attacks on women journalists, for example, especially, but also politicians, women politicians. Again, it's interesting that there's this gender angle um, to the attacks and a lot of uh, misinformation, false information that's being spread uh, around and causing harm. Uh, we saw that during COVID-19, for example, on the issue of vaccinations. There is also disinformation, which means uh, information that may or may not be true. It could be false. It could be true. It could be manipulated. Uh, that is spread with intent to cause harm. And we've seen that, for example, with the genocide of the Rohingyas uh, in Myanmar. So there's good and bad out there in the new information world. No, absolutely. And I think one of the points I wanted to make is that we do live in interesting times, um, as, as Mr. Chamberlain used to say. Um, um, but, but yeah, it, it gives a lot of opportunities. I mean, I, li I worked in, in, in sort of post-conflict worlds and I've seen human rights defenders, journalists, women politicians, um, but people from the provinces really down in the grassroots of society, making their voice heard and being able to contribute to, for example, peaceful solutions, come up with their opinions and sort of really move a country towards more transparency and democracy. And I think freedom online is something that is the basic, uh, freedom of expression is the basic, uh, one of the basic elements of a, of a, of a free and dem democratic society. But you're absolutely right, there's a backlash uh, to those speaking out um, from state actors and non-state actors. Um, so um, just can you explain again what is that important that we uh, preserve our human rights, uh, including freedom online and our access to information? You talked also about the divide between North and South, between the countries that are developed and are not developed. Yeah, well, you know, one of the most important things is to understand how empowered individual citizens are today because of the access to technology that allows them to communicate so freely. Uh, before I get on to the sort of the risks and the threats, uh, let me tell you that just about a week ago, two weeks ago, I was in Bangkok at a meeting of grassroots organization, feminist organizations in Asia. And 
every single one of them, and LGBTI groups were also there, and every one of them talked about how empowered they felt, how much they could organize online, that they are not allowed in the traditional societies in, uh, in which they live to do offline. So for them, it's hugely empowering. At the same time, they complained about how the prejudices, the threats, the risks to those communities have now been transferred online. And, and this is a very serious problem because the business model of the social media platforms, the way in which they work with algorithms, uh, with data harvesting, with their ad tech, ad technology, um, that is actually allowing harmful, provocative, hurtful information to proliferate online. And of course, there are a lot of people, I would say, human beings are creating this information very often. Uh, a lot of uh, state and non-state actors who have a keen interest uh, to have that false information out there and to attack people, um, vulnerable people, people at risk, women's groups, as I mentioned, uh, minorities, religious groups, um, religious minorities and others. So that creates a, a, a very complex situation in our world today, where normally, you know, in the old days, we would communicate directly. So you knew who was saying what to whom. Now it happens online, driven by a commercial model of social media, who's making money out of this. And because they're making money out of it, they are keen to do what works most. And what's working a lot is, of course, disinformation, misinformation, uh, and attacks hate speech. Mm -hmm. But is it not also a question that, for example, the commercial technological progress goes much faster than we as diplomats, as human rights advocates, can work to balance that with, with human rights. How do you engage with those social media platforms, for example, to balance the speed at which they move forward and we try to move our level of protection ahead as well? Well, the interesting thing is that the human rights standards, international human rights rules that were made just after the Second World War in the 50s and 60s are as equally valid today in the digital world as they were in the world of that time. Uh, there is a very clear right to freedom of opinion and expression, uh, which means uh, we are able to search, find, share information and ideas of all kinds across borders. It's not unlimited. The same rules say that that can be restricted where, for example, um, someone else's rights or someone else's reputation is being hurt or where there is an issue of public order or public health, for example, as we saw in the context of COVID-19 or national security. So there are certain restrictions and clearly international law says you have to pro prohibit hate speech, propaganda for war uh, and, and so on. So there are both uh, the freedom as well as the restrictions clearly uh, written out. And that's equally applicable today as it was in the past. What is happening now is, of course, that on the one hand, um, governments are seeking to control disinformation, I think, in a problematic way. And the companies are also behaving in a problematic way in which they allow disinformation to flourish. What needs to happen, I mean, you cannot, you see, disinformation, what is disinformation to you may not be disinformation to me. It may be my legitimate point of view, but you don't agree with it. I have seen, for example, that when I have talked about human rights violations in certain countries, the governments have turned around, the government has turned around and said, well, what you're saying is false. You've been led, misled by disinformation. 
So what is the absolute truth is not clear in international law. International law does not protect you from false information. It protects you from harmful information. So the rules are there. The problem is that the governments are misusing some of those rules to clamp down on free speech under the guise of protecting disinformation. The effect of that is people still continue to believe that false information that is floating, but it then goes underground. So you can't do anything about it. It makes it worse. Uh, companies can take measures to remove hurtful, harmful speech. For example, online attacks from against women journalists. And they sometimes do not do that because it's in their interest to amplify information, to keep people engaged on the platforms in order to sell their products. And therefore, nothing happens. So I would say both governments and companies need to change their behavior. Mm -hmm. But how do you engage with a government that is of the opinion that it really suits their national purposes to have disinformation or even harmful information? How do you engage with a multi-billion dollar company with many lobbyists that of course would like to see their business model protected? How, how, yeah. do, you, how do you open a discussion? How do you well, get to a common view? I think in the same way that you work with any human rights <coughs> violations, I think we must not forget the people power that exists. Public opinion matters. I have not come across a single government in the UN system who does not care about its reputation or image. Um, so there is a value in exposing what's happened. And data actually shows that where you have uh, anonymous or cross-border operations of misinformation, disinformation happening, if the platforms were to expose, to be transparent and say who it is, then the disinformation goes down. So there is something platforms can do. They can be more transparent. There is need also for the platforms to do human rights due diligence in their work. You know, they have the responsibility to respect human rights in their own operations, which they don't do uh, always. So that they need to be very careful about. And then they need to be honest about the impact of, of their work and uh, provide remedies to those uh, who are affected by it. Governments need to be a source themselves of trustworthy information. Instead of trying to clamp down on disinformation, if governments provide trustworthy public information that people can turn to and trust and use, it's verifiable information. If governments also allow media freedom because an independent public interest media is actually the best fact checker uh, around the world. So if that happens, and the final element is empowering the individuals who use these platforms uh, to know, to detect, for example, deep fakes, to be able to detect one source of information from another. You know, you and I are, are, have been educated in media. So we know the difference between the New York Times and the New York Post, for example, in the US uh, scenario. Other media uh, here, we would know the difference between Fox News and CNN. In the same way, digital users also have to be educated so that they understand which sources to trust and which not. And there are very good programs. For example, I uh, read recently about the program in Finland where children in elementary schools are being taught how to detect uh, fake, uh, deep fakes uh, from, from this, you know, reality. Uh, so there is a lot that can be done to empower uh, users. Mm -hmm. 
They always say you, you can have your own opinion, but you cannot have your own set of facts. I think that's very important. You can have your own opinion, you cannot uh, create facts, but you know, uh, there are some things that can be proven scientifically, but there is a lot of news and information and ideas out there that are views perspectives and are very valuable so it's very valuable to have diverse points of view mm-hmm. out there and for people to be able to judge themselves what they're listening to and also add their own point of view i mean that's what democracy is all about no and you're right i think during the covid crisis when we had a lot of disinformation about vaccination that you mentioned um, some of the platforms actually put disclaimers under a number of messages saying that please, this is not verifiable or this is actually false information. I thought that was a, a good development because I think you need to be able to express your opinion, but you also have to be able to <laughs> being told this is not the correct facts or the correct interpretation. But um, I haven't seen that with the other crisis that we're facing at the moment. Um, it seems like when it was COVID and everybody was concerned and there was quite sort of an outcry that companies reacted. But now it's, it's a different story. How do you explain yes, that? Yes, which proves that the companies could do more if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's in their interest, if they have enough pressure and guidance from governments. I have called for governments to do smart regulation. Uh, and that means of, of, of uh, digital platforms. That means not interfering with the content of what is being said, but making sure that the platforms have clear content moderation policies based on human rights, that they apply that properly, and uh, and, and that uh, they are transparent about what they're doing, their own algorithms. Uh, so platforms can improve their processes, and the states, as in any industry, any part of the economy, has a responsibility to make sure that harmful content uh, is, is not produced. Uh, but for the state to say this is harmful and that is not is a very dangerous thing because all governments will tend to favor information that praises them and censor information that tends to criticize them. Um, but you mentioned Geneva. Um, let, me, let me just take a one, one step back. I think that, that the, the issue of disinformation, uh, of trying to point people at a certain direction is, is very important. And I could just recommend the, the, the listeners today to, uh, to read your report of last year on disinformation. I actually started, this has been even an old habit that goes back 2000 years to the Roman Empire, but this is at a, at a, at a, at a, at a much larger scale. Now, you mentioned Geneva, and that's where we are. We're sitting here in a nice building here in the middle of Geneva. And we are at the center also at looking at, at, at human rights and freedom of expression. We have the International Telecommunications Union, which is just up the road from here, that, for example, looks at the standard of internet. We couldn't place a telephone call or surf on the web without sort of their cooperation. They're also there to bridge the digital divide. 200 meters up the road, we have the UN Palais, that's uh, where we have the Human Rights Council, where we look at freedom of expression online. Do you think that the international community is doing enough? You talked about governments, you talked about companies. Let's now focus at the international organizations. How can we do better? I think uh, the challenges are huge. Uh, We've talked so far about how valuable technology is for freedom of expression. We've talked about both the opportunities and the threats. But one thing we have not talked about 
is that many people in the world do not have equal access to that technology. There is a digital divide that needs to be closed. And that cannot only be done by individual governments. It, there, the international community has to come in, international organizations, as well as the member states who are part of those international organizations collectively have to come in to close the digital divide. Um, if you take, uh, if you look at women, for example, uh, you know, uh, less than half, 48, I think about 48% of women around the world have access to the internet. But if you look at Africa, African women, the figures are down to something like 23% in some parts of Africa. So there are a lot of people who have no access to this uh, kind of vital information uh, uh, streams and possibility platforms, and uh, they're being left behind. So we need to see information as a public good, we need to see information as a fundamental human right. And we need to make sure that it's available to everyone. And that is of a quality, that, and here the companies come in, that is of a quality uh, that is uh, uh, not harmful. And uh, everyone has a role to play. And international organizations like ITU, like the Human Rights Council, uh, like other parts of the United Nations, the developments uh, part, uh, or, uh, organizations within the uh, United Nations system all have a role to play in that. Yeah. No, I'm, you mentioned also the Netherlands leading also the Freedom Online Coalition. I think there was a quite a discussion also in the, the recent Human Rights Council on cyberbullying. And it was the first resolution, I think, becomes much more and more part of our daily thinking and, and the focus of that Absolutely. As well. But we have to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. How do you mean? Because there is so much discussion about cyberbullying, about online attacks, about disinformation, misinformation, that there is now a growing feeling among some governments that let's shut down the digital technology or let's control entirely the platforms. That's the way to clean up the mess. And for me, that is throwing the baby out with the bathwater, because if you try that approach, then you're actually... Uh, destroying the very power of digital technology, which has been to allow people to have diverse uh, forms of information available, to be able to contribute their own points of view uh, in, in that uh, overall uh, stream of things. And we have to be very careful that we do not introduce an overly paternalistic uh, approach to information. It's going to be very different balancing acts, huh? because we would like to ensure security, therefore we would like to have further control or at least be able to redress. But we have done this in our open economy with consumer goods, for example. You know, I can go to a supermarket and choose what I want to eat, but I have on the label exactly what products are there. I have uh, information available, health information of what makes me healthy and what I need to do. Why do, not, why do we not trust the rights holders, the users, and empower them to judge rather than have a super nanny state or an empowering uh, dictatorial state, or even worse, privatize this, allowing companies to choose in the name of innovation what, what they wish to do. So what I'm saying is smart regulation by the state, respect for human rights standards of international freedom of opinion and expression, and empowering people to be able to exercise their rights. Well, that's, I think, a, a very good conclusion of our discussion today. And, and let me thank you again for this interview and your very frank assessment and opinion. Um, and I can only have the highest respect for your work. It's, it's going to be very difficult to weigh these balances, but also to approach the various, uh, various actors. And I think you're one of the beacons of hope of uh, freedom of expression for those uh, that really need to express themselves to make their concerns heard, but also to um, 
provide a certain safety for themselves. Uh, so thank you very much for this interview and uh, hope to speak to you again quite soon. Thank you. This is Digital Dots Talks in Geneva, a 15-minute podcast to give you an overview of international digital issues and the role of Geneva in shaping our digital future. This podcast is presented by the Mission of the Netherlands in Geneva and the Geneva Internet Platform.